As you're listening to this episode, let us know if you have any questions for our guest. If so, please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. Welcome to the One Haas podcast. I'm Chris Kim. Today, we have Dr. Elida Bautista, Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer at Berkeley Haas. Dr. Bautista received her PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Michigan and leads strategic diversity initiatives for Berkeley Haas. Alida, thanks for joining us and great to have you on the show. Thank you for inviting me. You know, at Berkeley Haas, Alida, you're kind of the face and the champion for for all things DEI. Could you maybe share a bit about what you do at Haas briefly and, and kind of what your experience has been since, since you joined a, a couple of years ago? Sure. So I just was recently appointed the Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer, but I've been serving in that role (laughs) as an interim for the past year. So part of what the work is that I've been doing at at that level is carrying out our five-year DEI strategic plan. The kind of three levels of that are increasing representation, ensuring that we're offering skills to all of the stakeholders, so students, staff, alumni administration and cultivating a sense of belonging through programming and events that we offer. So that's at at the high level. I sit in the Dean suite and part of the management team. So I'm able to weigh in on, you know, school level decisions as we all advise uh, our Dean. I'd say on a day-to-day basis, some of my work is anything from advising students on their DEI focused projects or startups, questions they might have, consultations, you know, supporting programming that is put on by either our team, the DEI team, or by some of the student clubs and and centers, and working with our faculty, with our associate deans of academic affairs to address all of the three areas of our strategic plan with regard to the faculty. That's awesome. I mean, for folks who are at Haas now, they probably know, you know, Elita, I don't want to like raise you up too high, but you're really a like a hero for a lot of us. I mean, for me personally, one of the first presentations I saw was when you came to our like our new orientation for students and you were just sharing kind of what your vision was and kind of the work you were doing. And I mean, it's it's super motivating and it's awesome to have you as our, our chief DEI officer here at Haas. Thank you so, so much. I just wanted to throw that out. Um, that really means a lot to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, a bit of a fan as well. So (laughs) thank you. It's been really touching and inspiring for me to see how the community has rallied around my appointment as a chief diversity officer. I, I definitely have felt the support from our students, from our alumni, from our staff, but also like the partnership, right? Like nobody that's doing DEI work is doing it alone. It really takes all of us collectively it helps to have somebody who's leading the pack and has a vision, but ultimately our day-to-day actions toward each other and how we show up in the classroom or how we show up in co-curricular activities, that's where it really shows up, right? And so I just have appreciated all of the partnerships from my colleagues that lead other units and how they're integrating this into their own strategic plans and visions and practices within their teams but also, you know, how much of this work our students and our alumni continue to do and how they show up and everything from our alumni chapters offering programming that has DEI focus to 
and like I said earlier, to the programs that our students put together and curricular activities that our students offer to their peers. So yeah, thank you. Could you share about, you know, a bit about your background? I know for folks who have heard it, I mean, it's an amazing story, but would you share just where did you grow up and, and what was that experience like? Sure. So I love, if you've heard me speak anywhere, I tend to uh, always share that I was born and raised in Chicago. But I'll, I'll say a little bit before that is that my parents are both immigrants from Mexico. My dad and my paternal grandfather both initially came to the U.S., as farm workers through a program that the U.S. had contracting labor from Mexico. So that's kind of the origin story. At some point, my mom and my siblings joined and came as, you know, undocumented. And then eventually I was born in Chicago and different policies and laws in place at the time allowed us to give them permanent residency and eventually citizenship. But I grew up in Chicago at a time where I think all of us in that generation were benefiting from the gains that were made across a variety of civil rights movements that happened in the 60s and early 70s. And so, you know, not perfect, but in that era, we had our first black mayor, we had our first woman mayor. All of my teachers were of a variety of different ethnicities. I had a Mexican teacher, Puerto Rican teacher, Filipino, Japanese several black teachers, Italian, Polish. And I was bused to a school that was better resourced. I think now as an adult, I can think critically that it would have been better to resource the schools that were local to us. Mm. But I was fortunate enough to have access to a school that had a lot to offer for me academically that was stimulating and that allowed me to have different opportunities and to grow up in a community that was in a school community, I should say, that was incredibly diverse racially, ethnically, but also we had a program for students in particular that were hard of hearing or deaf and other students with other limited mobility or, or other special needs. And so, you know, we were all together outside at Reese's speaking a variety of languages, eating a variety of foods, playing every kind of game. You mentioned being Korean like a lot of the students I went to school with were Korean. So so I had a lot of childhood games like Paper, Scissors, Rock was Kai Bai Bo to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and to my family, like to this day, my siblings, we all call it Kai Bai Bo. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah. So I think that really influenced and shaped just my experience in the world going forward. That's awesome. Were you cognizant of what of what that experience was like um, when you were growing up? Or is that something you kind of realized after the fact? Let's see. I think as it was happening, I was certainly aware that it was different from what was happening at home, right? So our the community I was growing up with in was primarily a Puerto Rican community, but there were a lot of families that from the same town that my parents were from and all of our extended family as well. So I was cognizant of for example, that I was eating ravioli for the first time in the school cafeteria and trying to introduce my mom to it. <laughs> she was not having it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a little different experience. <laughs> you know, and we were, I grew up Catholic and one of my best friends on the bus was Taiwanese. Mm. And, and so mm. she was the first person I ever knew who was not Christian, right? And she very clearly let me know that early on in our friendship, like that's not everybody's thing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. So that was the first time I was aware that different people believe different things. And 
I think probably where it really sunk in for me was when we spent summers growing up in Mexico. And mm. when I was a teenager, we moved to California to a predominantly Mexican town that was primarily a farm working community. And I think that's where I realized how special, unique that experience was to having grown up in this particular period of time in Chicago. No, that that's awesome. Could you talk a little bit about that transition? I actually, you know, had a very similar experience where I, I moved in high school and, and it was a very different experience. Can, how did that influence you and, and change maybe your perspective or your experience, especially in those critical years in high school where you're kind of learning and developing and maybe thinking about what's after high school? Absolutely. I think, you know, sadly, one of the things that it really made me aware of was that Mexican students get tracked into the non-college you know, future. <laughs> and so I was definitely a straight A student, student leader. I was in student government, yearbook. I was a nerd. <laughs> Not surprising. <laughs> That's how you end up getting a PhD. <laughs> but it was a battle at every level to get access to the classes that I needed to go to college and even which colleges I applied to. The feedback I was getting from teachers and staff by and large was that that's that that was not a path for me. It was the narrative across that town and school was like kids just didn't go to college from there who look like me. So the expectations of where I would end up were clearly conveyed to me. And therefore, I had to constantly resist and prove them wrong. And luckily, I had, you know, a couple of folks who pulled me aside and kind of gave me the roadmap of where I wanted to go and how to get there. So that was, it made all the difference, right? You just need one person. And for me, that was my my student government advisor who also knew that I was interested in pursuing psychology. And she planted that seed in my head that I needed to go straight through from undergrad to grad school, that it would be much harder later to get, for example, a master's degree in counseling or something, which was when I was in high school, that's what I was aiming for, was that I would pursue a master's in counseling. And then once I got to college, I refined that more to be the, a doctorate in, in clinical psych. So yeah, that was, that was a, a harsh transition was realizing how under-resourced, how targeted, how much stereotypes impacted that perception and expectation, but also then limited opportunities. I always want to ask this, Alita, like, especially for me, at least when, I, and I'm not saying that this doesn't happen because I know it happens and I've experienced it myself, but you know, when you see a bright young person who's doing amazing things and someone like you, like self-described nerd, but like <laughs> super just active and, and in it and has so much promise. Why do you think you were getting that negative feedback in terms of, or maybe not the type of feedback that you might, you might just assume, Hey, this person's probably going to go to college, probably going to be super successful, but you were saying you, you're experiencing quite the opposite. What, what do you think was, was there or motivating that? That's a great question. I think part of it was like tempering my expectations, right? I had, for example, an English teacher who thought I was, it was sort of this message of like, who do you think you are? That I wasn't applying to any Cal State schools. I only applied to UCs and private schools. And she thought I needed a backup plan and that I was kind of overshooting, right? Because we were in this agricultural community, which to be fair, I had no idea what was happening in other high schools throughout California. We, for example, only had that one AP class, which was the English AP. Whereas, you know, I was competing with students from high schools that their whole curriculum were, you know, by their senior year were AP classes. 
And so maybe they had that in mind that, I don't know, if they were worried that I was going to fall flat or that I was aiming too high coming from a small agricultural town, for example, to go to like a UC Berkeley is a big leap, right? In terms of, you know, retention and, and graduation rates for Chicano Latino students in the UC Berkeley system at the time. I mean, in, at UC Berkeley specifically, I should say. And so I don't know if it was just so outside of their norm that they didn't know it was possible, right? But I also wonder how much it wasn't possible for folks because nobody was advising them on which classes to take, you know. But one quick example is I really wanted to take French class and you're required to take a foreign language in order to get into a UC, for example. And my counselor refused to let me register for French and instead registered me for Spanish for native speakers. And the rationale, despite my protesting, was that I would never need or be able to use French. It was like, where do you think you'll go in the world that that will be useful? And that as a Mexican kid, I should learn how to speak and write Spanish correctly. So this was coming from somebody who was not fluent and therefore they were making assumptions about my ability to speak Spanish correctly, which were incorrect. I had learned to read and write in Spanish first. So grammatically and in other ways, my Spanish is very strong. So it was all just an annoyance and frustration for me that I wasn't being allowed to learn something new that would give me access to travel and potentially live in countries that were French speaking, right? That it was like so beyond their imagination of what was possible for somebody like me. It was like, how the heck do you think you'll end up, you know, in Martinique or Paris or, you know, Quebec or something? <laughs> well, they definitely underestimated you because uh, you did go to an amazing school, if, you know, from what I've heard. Could you share maybe where you ended up going to college and, and how did you end up deciding on where you wanted to, to study? I went to Claremont McKenna College in Southern California. I had my heart set on UC Berkeley. <laughs> I was going to go to Berkeley no matter what. I knew this is where I was going to fit in because I was that little radical teenager, you know. And there was an extended visit at Claremont where they housed me with two Chicanas who were doing really amazing service work. For example, one of the things they did was tutor the, the cafeteria women on their citizenship tests. And there's just a real spirit there that I appreciated. But I think really ultimately why I decided to go to Claremont instead of UC Berkeley at that time was what I shared earlier, which was the they shared with me all those statistics about retention and graduation. And there was this, you know, you're guaranteed to graduate in four years from the Claremont colleges. Financial aid was stable. As somebody who is first generation and low income, I really needed to know that I had that financial support. I didn't have financial support from my parents. And so I needed to make sure that this risk that I was taking by going to college and not going immediately into the workforce, which was their preference or their, at the time, understanding of what would have been best. So I didn't have a safety net, basically. And I felt like Claremont was a safer package as a whole. And because of the small class size, I also knew that I would have opportunities for doing research early on, which would then set me up properly to get into graduate school. So that's what led me down that path. <laughs> 
that's crazy. You know, I, I resonate so much with it because my own experience is, is very similar. You know, could you share maybe with folks who aren't familiar, like especially for first generation college students or folks who don't feel like that they have that safety net? You said college was like a risk, right? And most people probably don't associate college with the risk. But could you share maybe a little bit of what that experience was like and kind of why why you felt like it was a risk? I, I definitely have experienced that in my own journey, but would love if you could just share you know, what was going through your mind, because I'm sure there are other folks who might be thinking about that or experiencing that even right now. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, for one, it was all the messaging I was getting from the staff and teachers in the high school. But the pressures at home were that, you know, we were low income on public assistance. And so my older siblings had gone directly into the workforce so that they could help contribute back to the family expenses, right? California is super expensive compared to Chicago. <laughs> and we were living in a farm worker community, right? So my older siblings went on to do, you know, essentially office work and in order to meet all the family needs. So not just rent and, you know, light bills or whatnot, but also, yeah, like they were helping out with the kids essentially, right? Which are the rest of us. So the lack of income from me was a negative for the family. You just feel like this sense of pressure and this maybe a little bit of guilt. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. It definitely. So it's like the, so part of it, why it felt like a risk is like the expectation was we need you to financially contribute to the family because I was making a choice to go to college and not be in a position to financially contribute. I also was not in a position to ask for anything, right? So it felt like a risk because there was no choice but to succeed, <laughs> right? I had Failure be, was not an option. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Failure was just not an option. Like I had to do well in school, make sure I continued to get scholarships. You know, I was on the cafeteria meal plan. <laughs> like mm -hmm. my food and housing was coming from this school and I needed to just keep moving forward and make sure that I was doing everything that I could to make sure that I was going to get into a PhD program, which was also just not necessarily guaranteed, even if you're going to a Claremont, right? I had known other students ahead of me that had tried to get in over multiple years and hadn't gone, been able to go directly from undergrad into grad school. And so I knew there were no guarantees, but I also knew I had to just make sure that I was doing my best. Yeah. And actually, I should say, my mom always said, there's no shame in coming back home. If it doesn't work out, just come back home. <laughs> so it was definitely just my own internalized pressure. I was like, no, I'm not coming back home. I'm going to go have this adventure. <laughs> sounds like a very familiar story. Uh, <laughs> but you were successful. It goes without saying. I mean, you were successful. You did get into a PhD program and, and, and graduated with a degree in, in clinical psychology. Can you talk a bit about what that experience was like and also moving uh, pretty far away uh, yeah. from, from where you were at the time and and then maybe even your what was that post post academic or post PhD experience like because you had a, a really prolific experience I think afterwards both in kind of research and also in, in practice as well so yeah I went to the University of Michigan for my PhD I was 21 at the time if you can believe it I think probably the saving grace was that that Ann Arbor was just a four-hour train ride from Chicago, and I still had family and friends in Chicago, so there was kind of a home away from home, which was basically going back to my roots. <laughs> and but it was it was really hard at that point in my life. I really wanted to be closer to my family, but I also knew that Michigan was a top three school 
in psychology and my undergrad professors had essentially said, like, if you want to end up working in the UC system or in California, it helps to go away for school, right? You'll be seen as more competitive if you're getting your degree from some of these other schools. And so it felt like a sacrifice and a blessing. I mean, I had a full fellowship. Michigan is very resourced when it comes to people to do research with. They had a great faculty. I knew that one of the reasons I chose Michigan was that there were multiple faculty that I could do research with that had areas of focus that I was interested in with regard to ethnic and racial identity development, culturation, et cetera. And so it was the right place for me in that regard. And I had a lot of opportunities for not just research, but also for clinical practice rotations given how few Spanish speakers there are. You know, I was doing a lot of community work and I got to do a lot of my research both in Detroit and in Chicago. And so it was, um, yeah, it felt like it was a good place for me to serve the community that I care about in ways that I knew was at least increasing some of that access. Much of the work I ended up doing was focused on trauma, basically community violence and domestic violence. I was primarily working with Black and Latinx and primarily Mexican communities. I still have a lot of stories of children and, and youth and families that I worked with while I was there. So subsequently, I spent a year at UC Santa Barbara doing a fellowship, finishing up my dissertation, teaching in their Chicano Studies Department. And then I spent my career at UCSF for about 15 years. Yeah. So I did my postdoc at UCSF and then they recruited me to develop and run a training program for graduate students and residents that focused on developing them as culturally congruent providers who were trauma-informed serving the community in San Francisco. So we were based at San Francisco General Hospital. And I got to do a lot of really great creative interventions, essentially, and rotations that we built out there. So, you know, both in our pediatric outpatient to school-based to community-based sites, head starts. So it was all the things that, that I wanted to do when I wanted to pursue a PhD. And then toward the latter side of my career, and I was on faculty most of that time, and I got to then work with the vice chancellor of diversity and outreach to develop curriculum and training for leadership across the UC, across UCSF and all the various schools. That's amazing. Could you share a little bit about, you know, what type of uh, training or consulting you did with the, with the folks in, in UCSF? I know for a lot of folks, they maybe have experienced it or or they know of other folks who may have been in maybe some of the, the folks who would have benefited from this training. But could you maybe share a bit about that training and the impact that, you know, this type of training helps with either folks who are in the health system or, you know, even staff or, or other folks as well? Sure. So the training program was essentially a rotation, you know, year long for, like I said, graduate students in psychology or psychiatry residents. We had social work students at times, nursing, psychiatric nurses. And the essentially all of our whole approach in that program was both in terms of the, the curriculum and our style of clinical supervision, our actual interventions and, and how we conducted our evaluations, our assessment intakes was to have 
a culturally informed approach where we were partnering with families as as the expert in their experience, right? So we operated from a framework of cultural humility and took into consideration what are the evidence-based interventions, who were these based on in the research, and how might we adapt them to fit the communities that we're serving, where there's multiple traumas, multiple types of traumas, many more incidents of trauma that they experience, and how can we use that to understand what they're presenting with psychologically. It was a mental health outpatient clinic for children, youth, and families. And predominantly part of that approach was how do we meet them where they're at in the community to reduce that barrier of access so they don't have to come to General Hospital where we were physically located in an inpatient unit, even though we were an outpatient clinic. And all of what that does to the stigma of receiving care, right, or even seeking out care is really different than if, you know, the lady that's down the hall in the office at the school, right, or I come to the Head Start and you know, sit with the mom. And so that was the approach to the training for providers, right? To become community providers. At that kind of higher systemic level, it was working with deans and chairs to understand these concepts, but also really change policies and processes on anything from admissions to hiring to increase that representation across the health sciences. That's awesome. And I can imagine for so many folks who come from diverse backgrounds, they probably just appreciate even people considering that and taking that into consideration when, you know, you're engaging somebody else. And, you know, concepts of illness, whether it's physical or mental, are so culturally bound, right? Like we all have different understandings of what we're presenting with, especially, and how to treat it, right? And so even making room for a conversation about how people are going about treating themselves, right? Like who are the types of practitioners they seek out and how might we work with them, right? To ensure that we were supporting their mental health and their functioning by involving the community members. So whether they are somebody who are more seeking out a spiritual person in their community or somebody who, you know, I was raised more with like, herbal remedies and Mm. essentially what would be massages here, you know, they were called sobadoras and some more like indigenous practices. So for me, like oddly enough, once I grew up as an adult, what was more accessible to me was acupuncture, but there's such an overlap in that approach to understanding illness and treatment. So just making room, I don't know what that looks like for you in the culture that you're from. So I want to understand that so that we can together come up with what's going to work for you. I certainly know that mindfulness is an evidence-based intervention for trauma and, and PTSD, anxiety, et cetera. But what does meditation or mindfulness look like for you in practice? Maybe that's singing on the gospel in your church, right? Maybe that's not going to be going for a walk in a neighborhood where it doesn't feel safe to go for a walk, right? No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in tech, we always talk about thinking about the user, but it's almost the same way you're using that evidence-based approach to say, you know, think about the patient or think about the person. And that's awesome. You had a, a great 
career at UCSF, but a interesting business school a couple of years ago, thought uh, it would be very good for us to bring you over into the Bay over at, at Berkeley Haas. Can you share a bit about uh, what that was like in that transition, uh, why you decided to move, and also what that experience has been like the past couple of years? Actually, Dr. Renee Navarro, who is the vice chancellor of diversity and outreach at UCSF, was the one that suggested I look at the job description. And at the time, I had actually multiple people in my life sent me this particular job description. Oh, and wow. I was just like, what is going on, universe? <laughs> and, and in my initial <laughs> conversation with her, I was like, I'm not sure I could see myself at a business school. I mean, I've been at General Hospital all these years. I very much saw myself as community-based person, you know, and she said, well, just, you know, do me a favor, look at, like, really read the job description and look at the website. You might be surprised. Like, you just think about it. Like, I just want you to actually, she's like, maybe you just send in the application. You can always say no, <laughs> you know, and she's like, I think you're going to really like it there. And I think it's a really <laughs> great opportunity for you. You know, she had been suggesting associate vice chancellor of diversity roles at, at some of the other UCs. And I just wasn't ready to relocate to that level. <laughs> and I think she saw this particular role because it was in the business school to be elevated enough that it would be a great opportunity for me in my career. And so, yeah, so having so many people then follow up and send it to me as well, I really just like, all right, let me look, let me look at this website here. And I was honestly just blown away. I had no idea that business school could look like this, right? And so what I like to say to my friends who are like, how did that happen? <laughs> is for a business school, Haas is very Berkeley. For Berkeley, Haas is very much a business school, right? And so that's where the growth and opportunity is in terms of our ability to pursue diversity, equity, and inclusion as a priority and to be a role model and leader for other business schools. And, you know, when I first arrived, I certainly felt like we had a long ways to go. Like there were some leaps that needed to be made. But I also found that there was a whole community rallying in that direction, right? A community of alums, of students, of both, you know, senior leaders who were just ready to partner. I think part of what happened as well that positioned me to be able to lead these initiatives when I first arrived was that all of the folks on my panel of interviewers were our assistant deans of the various degree programs. And so even in the interview process, I was being positioned as a peer who would be partnering with them to carry this work out to ensure that it was being distributed through all our degree programs, through our alumni relations, our career management, you know, and really throughout our units. That's awesome. I mean, at Haas, for folks who haven't been at Haas for a while or think about coming to Haas, you know, Haas is really, I tell people it's a different business school. It's like, you know, it's heart and head, you know, it's the feelings and it's the business, the numbers and the feelings. It's all the right things you would hope for. I'm not perfect for sure. <laughs> all the right things you would hope to have in a leader. You know, I think you can find at least one person, if not multiple people at Haas who are great examples of that. Um, yeah. I mean, but I think it's I, our defining leadership principles are yeah, very accurately yeah. reflective of the culture. It's certainly there are pockets that we still need to continue to 
cultivate more belonging, the relationships and the pipelines and partnerships that will allow us to increase the diversity. So there is a lot more work to do, absolutely. But I am always reassured by the level of partnership that I see and who shows up. And I know there is also always going to be folks that are not quite sure or are worried about backlash or about direction, but I am able to at least have a conversation with them about what's what's behind that, right? And how can I address it and support them in getting beyond that fear? What are some of the areas that you've been excited about or, or stoked about in terms of the progress that we've made at Haas? And, and where are some of the areas like candidly that we can definitely make more improvement or, or need to make more improvement from your view as our uh, chief DEI officer? I'd say some of the areas that we've had significant gains are in our admissions process across our MBA programs in particular. We've had some increases in representation for URMs, and that is absolutely due to the types of partnerships and our ability to increase that transparency and trust and acknowledge and own what had been those struggles in the past. We were able to increase our amount of financial aid and uh, scholarships that we were able to offer, which made us more competitive. So those were areas where I think we made some major gains. I'd say where we continue to have some challenges and I'm excited about the opportunities to address these challenges is in our PhD program and our faculty, right? So our ability to produce more diverse faculty across business schools is going to rely on ensuring that we have a more diverse PhD student body across business schools, right? So I think that's both a challenge and an opportunity that we can lead and model and support other business schools to do the same because we can't be the only ones doing that. And then those students would get recruited, obviously, by other universities. So we also <laughs> we need to make sure that we're bringing more people into the pool as a whole. And so we recently got a million dollar gift from Alan Holt, class of 76, I believe. And so we're using part of that to create an endowment for our scholarships for students who have a commitment to diversity, which we hadn't had in the past. This will be a new endowment. And then the other portion we're using toward creating a postdoc and supporting our faculty to increase diversity in their curriculum. So that's the work that's ahead of us. You know, and unfortunately, those are kind of those longer term fixes, like a PhD program takes five years <laughs> so <laughs> by the time, at least, <laughs> depending on the student. And so by the time somebody joins the faculty ranks, and is teaching in that core course, you know, my, it might take a few years to see those, the effects of the, of what we put down now, but we have to start at least, <laughs> you know, obviously this is overdue, but at the very least we need to start to invest in that now so that we're seeing those, the fruits of those labors down the road while we simultaneously also make Haas a place that's appealing for faculty who want to do research that is rooted in DEI, who want to mentor, you know, students across a variety of identities that have continued to be underrepresented. And I think one area that's pretty glaring besides URM representation is the continued underrepresentation of women across our faculty and 
our all our degree programs, to be honest. That being said, and you know, I think the other challenge that we have is that we don't have accurate data and the campus doesn't collect data on disability, LGBTQ status, you know, religious minorities. And so there are a number of communities that have been uh, historically excluded that we don't know to what extent they're represented at Haas or at other business schools or in the graduate student ranks, right, to be able to meaningfully address those gaps. But I think, again, like we're trying to find ways to gather that data so that we can better track any progress and have those targeted outreach in the communities as well. Alita, we, we definitely ap- appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your story and, and everything that you've been doing at Haas. Anything you want to highlight in terms of the future, you know, in, as kind of our champion in the face of kind of all the all the good work that everyone's doing here at Haas as well. And any thoughts on how alumni and or student, current students can uh, get more involved and really oh, uh, promote diversity, equity and inclusion, not just on campus at Haas, but like out, outside of uh, that, even in the world that we live in. Thank you for asking that. I would say there are a number of ways that our alumni can be involved. For one, they can hire Hossies, of course. Hire <laughs> um, Hossies. If they're, excited, <laughs> if they're excited about... Please hire. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for our alumni who are excited about our initiatives and want to help Haas really be the leader in this space and, and develop this reputation as the place to go, if you are uh, interested in DEI, Scholarship funding helps, partnerships help. You know, there are a number of events that we see corporate sponsors for. I'll put a particular plug for a recent scholarship fund that we have developed in partnership with the the San Francisco Bay Area chapter of the National Black MBA Association. And that will be to increase the diversity representation in our evening weekend program in particular. Mentoring is always, I think, another way that people can give back, right? If you don't identify as somebody who's from an underrepresented group and you are in a position of privilege and power in, in your respective organization and the leadership position, that's the opportunity is to find somebody in your organization or, you know, or at Haas, right, to mentor them and kind of help them have access to those pathways that they wouldn't otherwise have access to, right? Having somebody who's willing to give you that roadmap, like my student government teacher did when I was in high school, right? To say, here's the classes you need to take. Here are the, you know, if you apply to private schools, they're going to have financial aid. So apply to private schools and then go directly into graduate school if you can, right? That was the roadmap that Intel that I wouldn't have otherwise known because nobody in my circle had graduated from college or pursued a graduate degree. And so I, I think those are the possibilities for our alumni who want to know how, what can I do? How can I get involved? If you're in a position to give, absolutely give. If you are in an organization that also has underrepresented folks, pull that person aside and see how you might be able to support them in their path. Check in on them offer them up for opportunities to serve on a board or to serve on a committee that's going to advance them in their career, that's going to give them visibility, that's going to give them access to other leaders. For those who are from underrepresented communities who are like, all right, I see what House is doing. I want to get engaged. I want to get involved. We are always looking to diversify the curriculum and to bring in more diverse voices. And so reach out, reach back, 
come be a guest speaker in a class, connect with the faculty member, connect with our speaker series. All of those areas of access are important. So yeah, or reach out to me. I'd be happy to have a conversation with you about uh, our initiatives. And if you want to get uh, more specific steps forward, you know, if there's something that you heard that excited you, we can use an endowed chair. If you want. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well ask for the whole, the whole or, or, Well, I mean, we always say at Haas, you got to put your money where your mouth is, right? So if we're in it, we're in it to win it, right? So yeah. And you mentioned that you're in the EGAL course right now. And so oh, yeah. I just wanted to say that they have a number of resources for the private sector that are playbooks that can be found on the EGAL website as well. If folks not, aren't sure where to start, one of the things that is on the EGAL website is commitments that different alumni have made for how they will, you know, essentially get involved in, in particular in racial justice, but in DEI as a whole. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we'll try to include some of those links um, in the description so that folks can just um, see it and, and get connected as well. So absolutely. Well, Alita, it's been so awesome to have you here. Before we end, uh, I'd like to do uh, some rapid fire questions if, if you'd okay. be open to it. <laughs> sure. Uh, not not super controversial, except <laughs> maybe for some. You might be, you might be. <laughs> Everything's but, controversial. Uh, we'll do, yeah, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do one. First question, Chicago or California? Really? You're going to say that's not controversial? <laughs> not that controversial, right? You're going to be right at the heart. <laughs> I can't pick. I guess, you know, there's. I love Chicago through and through, but I do love living in California. So that's what I'll say. <laughs> yeah. As someone who, who used to travel to Chicago for work, I definitely understand you know, the beauty and the charm that is Chicago. And I also do love living here. Second question, one person or leader that you admire, either it can be professionally or, or personally, someone who you admire or respect? I'm going to have to go with Harriet Tubman. She yeah. was, uh, I think, was a byproduct of growing up in Chicago at the time that I did. I was uh, obsessed with reading everything about her throughout my childhood. And I just think she was such an incredible leader in a number of ways. And I... Hold her in my thoughts often. Second to last one, a memory or experience uh, that you've had that just stays with you and, and is uh, precious or, or something that you uh, cherish. I got to be part of a lion conservation program in Zimbabwe and I was at Victoria Falls. And so just that time that I got to spend with the lion cubs on a daily basis was a life's dream. And as part of that trip, I went down to the Cape Town in South Africa for a few days and just got to sit at a table mountain and reflect on kind of everything that had come about in my life at that point. And it was just really hard to believe, to be honest. I, I sat there and watched the sunset and just cried at just not, I just can't believe this is my life, that I get to be on the other side of the world doing something that had been in my dreams for years, which is to connect with lions and just being able to travel and have the means to do so was not what anybody would have imagined for my path given where I started. And so that particular memory is, is very precious to me. That's awesome. And then last but not least, one thing or, or something that either in your personal or maybe your professional life that uh, you're excited for when it comes to the future. I just became a homeowner. <laughs> Yay! 
<laughs> another like I can't believe this is my life and it's it's just really really exciting. So I'm looking forward to moving in and settling in and being able to really call this home in a way that feels stable. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, well, Alida, we, we want to just thank you again for being on the show today. I'm sure you've inspired a, a whole crowd of people as, as you inspire us at, at Haas every day. And, and we're glad to have you and very appreciative and looking forward to all the amazing things ahead. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me and um, giving me a platform and having a conversation. Really appreciate it. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S.fm. There you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears! <laughs>